Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Michael. I am part of our teaching team here at Riverbend, and it's my pleasure to land the Love Has One plane that we've been on, I think since Easter, maybe even a little bit before. We've been in the, this book of John talking about this entire story of Jesus' life, and it's really exciting to me that I get the honor to try to bring in the approach, land the plane without too many bumps, make sure everybody gets off without having any life rafts. So if there's one thing, one thing that I want you to remember today, it's going to be this. It's right up here on the screen. This is the most important point. This really sums up the entire book of John. You are never too far gone because love has won. Could you humor me and say it with me one more time? You're never too far gone because... All right, take it off the screen. We're going to do it one more time. You're never too far gone. Why? Because love has won. Wherever you're at on your faith journey, like Sam said, you walk into church the first time, or you've been a seasoned Christian for your entire life, wherever you're at on this faith journey, I think we all can agree that we've made some bad choices, maybe some less than honorable decisions, maybe you've had a moment of weakness, knees got a little weak, made a bad choice, said something, maybe you went the wrong way. For me, in those moments, my emotional response to failure is shame. Shame and fear. And I, so I, I love that we sang uh, Holy Spirit today because that line that we are free of our shame. That is really, that is the crux of today's message is about shame and being free from shame. Why? You guys are great. This is a great class. All right. So fear, it's, it's a powerful driver of emotion. Sometimes you're afraid of success because of the spotlight or the expectation that comes with that. Maybe you're afraid of failure because you think your love, the love others will have for you, the appreciation that they have for you, rests on your ability to be successful. Maybe you're like me and you have this fear of abandonment and therefore you don't ever want to be vulnerable because it hurts when you get left. Maybe you have a fear of rejection, right? You're, you just, you're, no, who likes being told no? Like nobody, right? Uh, this fear of rejection, or, or maybe even worse, you're afraid you're not worthy of love. I think some of the best success stories in the world start with failure. Hear me out. Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that the light bulb didn't work. Steven Spielberg, one of the most prolific movie producers and directors of my generation, he failed to get into USC School of Arts. I guess he's laughing in Hollywood now, right? Dr. Seuss, how many of us taught our kids, if you're a parent or a, an older brother, older sister, how many of us taught our kids how to read by Dr. Seuss? I still have all the books at home, right? Dr. Seuss was rejected by 27 different publishers before he ever got a contract for his first book. Now, I, I know this next part might be blasphemous because we're in a Christian church, but Colonel Sanders... Colonel Sanders was a lawyer, he was a soldier, he was an insurance salesman, and so many more things. He got fired from all of his jobs, every single one of them, fired, lawsuits. He ends up just running this random gas station in Podunk, Kentucky, no offense to my friends from Kentucky here, um, but he ends up just running a gas station where he starts selling fried chicken, son of a gun. He was 61 years old when the state of Kentucky made him an honorary colonel. And his Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe took off. 
Who knew? Like I said, I, I believe that some of the best success stories start with failure. If you look at the biblical narrative, in the very first book of the Bible, Abraham failed to trust God when going over to Egypt. He failed to trust that God would take care of him and his wife Sarah. Moses failed to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He got them right up to the doorstep. Kind of like the Phillies, and then quit. <laughs> Stay with me, folks. Stay with me. The high-profile prophet Elijah cracked under the pressure of Jezebel, speaking fiercely about God's word, proclaiming the truth. Yet when he finds out this, this lady Jezebel, this queen, wants to have him off, he runs and he hides because he doesn't trust that God is bigger than his fear or the people that he feared. Can't talk about Old Testament folks without some random dude named David. How many of us have heard of David, right? David steal a man's wife, lied to the dude's face, then had him murdered on the front lines. And yet we affectionately recognize him as a man after God's own heart. Those are some pretty big failures. Adultery, theft, murder. And yet... He's known as a God, man after God's own heart. Why? Because he didn't let shame hold him back. He found grace. He accepted his wrongs. He said, Lord, I'm sorry. He found repentance. And then we have today's subject. If you have a Bible or Bible app, you know what? It's just going to be on the screen. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 74 and 75, here we find Peter, right? He's been out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He whacked off some dude's ear. Jesus kind of reprimands him, says, hey, don't do that. That's not how we do these things. Jesus is arrested. There's this kangaroo court that happens all night long. James, I'm sorry, John and Peter follow Jesus along. And Peter's hanging outside by the fire because he's a little sketchy, a little unsure. And they're like, hey, aren't you that dude who knows that dude? Aren't you the, aren't you, are you the guy who knows the guy? And this is like the third time. And Peter, like, He's called out on the carpet. He's embarrassed. He's frustrated. He's angry. And he starts cursing at people. He swears to them, I don't know that man. And then immediately a rooster crows. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said to him earlier. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Before the rooster crows three times, you will disown me. Peter remembers this. He goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Have you ever broken a promise? You ever gone back on your word? Ever failed to honor the oath or the responsibility that you have agreed to? I'd like to think that for most of us it was accidental. It was maybe well-meaning, maybe even good intentions. The great theologian Glenn Phillips writes, It's hard to rely on my good intentions. When my head's full of things that I can't mention, it seems I usually get things right, but I can't understand what I did last night. He later writes, he says that there's little relief. Give us reprieve for all the things that I've left behind. I'm positive. I'm not blind. No, that wasn't a theologian, ladies and gentlemen. That was Toad the Wet Sprocket. Where's my 90s music fans? But the truth of God's word can be found everywhere, can it not? The evidence of God's truth is around us. We just have to open our eyes. Here's the truth of a man's heart. He's making mistakes. Good intentions. I'm positive I'm not blind, but I've made mistakes. When I sin, when I fall short. And that's what sin is, right? Let's talk about sin for just a second. So you have the standard, the expectation, and then you have where I end up. Just short. So like, uh, like, Charlie Fo like Charlie Brown, somebody keeps moving the football, or maybe the, the, 
you know, you're at the golf course and the ball's like, come on, just a little bit closer, right? That's where I end up. That's what sin is. I'm falling short. I'm, I'm not living up to that goal, that expectation, that responsibility, that intention. So when I sin, my human impulse is to run. It's to hide. It's to, to just kind of crawl into a shell because fear, for me, is blinding. The shame is a crushing weight on my soul. And Peter's response in Matthew 26 that we just read about is so much like my own. Deny, deny, deny. Curse, run and hide. After Peter's very public, public denial, he disappears. In fact, it's not really until John chapter 21 where we see Peter show up on the scene again. It's not until after the resurrection of Christ. Failure and shame are dastardly things. Can we agree on this? Yes? But remember what I led with this morning. What's that key point? What's the one thing I want you to remember? Love has won. You're never too far gone because love has won. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the privilege to hear your word today. Thank you for giving us the privilege of breath, for the privilege of a place to be, a community to be a part of, for friends, family, loved ones around us. Most importantly, Lord, thank you for your amazing grace, for your undying love, for your sacrificial hope that we might take off the grave clothes, step forward into the grace of the reality of who you called us to be. We love you. We praise you in the perfect name of, it, of Jesus. We all said, all right, so John 21 starts off with Peter and the disciples. They've seen Jesus a couple times, kind of showed up a little bit. Peter, maybe out of boredom, out of confusion, maybe even out of fear, goes and does what he used to do. He's a fisherman by trade, so he goes and fishes. Takes his disciples with him, goes out. It's a long night. That's, they call it fishing, not catching. Nets are empty consistently, time and time again. It's daylight. They look out. Jesus is on the shore. says, hey, drop your net on this side. And Peter's like, dude, we've been doing this all night. Hello. No, 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 seriously, drop your net on this side. Drops the net on that side. Huge, huge catch of fish. And like Peter suddenly like clicks in his brain. He's like, oh, snap. That's my Jesus. So the scene is set. Jesus has a little fire, a little campfire on the beach, a little chill action, right? He's got some fish cooking. Invites Peter to come sit down with him. If you have a Bible or Bible app, follow along with me now. If, if you don't have a Bible, we really believe that God's Word should be available to everybody. Please take one from the ones out in the lobby. We'd love for you to have one. Take it, bring it back, mark it up, write it every week. It's really important, but we'll have it up on the screen as well. This is what it says. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Referring to the disciples. Yes, Lord, you know I love you, he says. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But 
When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he says to him, follow me. Now, I think we all have agreed that we've all felt shame. We've all experienced it. It's a consequence of sin. In fact, it's the very first consequence of sin. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it states that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In the very next verse, the serpent arrives, convinces them to sin, and immediately after sinning, they feel shame, and they try to hide themselves and their nakedness. With shame, paradise is lost. But nowhere in the biblical narrative does it say that God wants us to be ashamed. Think about that for a second. Nowhere in God's word does it say, does he say he wants you to be ashamed. He doesn't want that. He doesn't feel better if we feel miserable. His plan isn't to punish us and and for us to punish ourselves as to avoid his punishment. Instead, Jesus, God says, "I've I've got a plan for that. I've got this one figured out. Son, God flesh, go. Jesus comes and he dies on our behalf. Jesus is the key to overcoming the shame that is holding you back. Because Jesus pursues us in our shame. Jesus pursues us in our shame. Peter swore that he would die before disowning Jesus. And then he swore that same night that he'd never met Jesus. I don't know about you, but I would have felt pretty worthless. I would have felt like the worst kind of person. In John chapter 21, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter announces, I'm going to fish. Fishing is Peter's job, right? That's akin to us, you know, I'm going to the office. I'm going to the ball field. You know, I'm going to go make granola. I'm going to go do things. That's what I get paid to do. You know, but instead of fishing for men like Jesus had called him to, Peter goes back to fish for just fish. Maybe Peter doesn't feel worthy of telling others about Jesus after his very public failures. But Jesus pursues Peter in his shame. He shows up on the shore. He retraces and recreates the miracle that he performed when he first called Peter, James, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip. They were fishermen, ladies and gentlemen. He recreates the scene. No, no, no. Drop your net on this side. Oh, fish, come follow me. Jesus pursues us in our shame. He shows up on the shore. He recreates the miracle. And then he says, I want you to fish for people. Basically, Peter's being called to follow him again to show that it's safe and that Peter is not disqualified despite of anything he's done. I think there's somebody in this room today that needs to hear that. You are not disqualified from the kingdom of God because of something that you've done. There is grace that is available to you. There is hope that is available to you. There is love that has died for you because love is one. You are not disqualified. Peter wasn't disqualified after denying Christ three times. I promise you're not either. I'm confident in saying that Peter probably had a pretty high regard of himself. Probably thought he was the bee's knees. He was a cool dude. Probably thought his loyalty was unmatched, unheralded and regarded himself as the model of love and respect for Jesus. But clearly he had failed to live up to that lofty standard. So Peter is confronted by Jesus head on with this question. 
Do you love me more than you love these? More than you love the disciples? More than you love fishing? More than you love all these other things? Do you love me? Not only to show Peter his frailty, but also to show him that his failure doesn't define him and they don't disqualify him from God's plan. God doesn't stop pursuing us, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't give up. And no matter what you've done or how many times you've done it, he knows what you've done and everything that you're going to do. And he still chose to die for you anyway. In Romans it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Here's the next part. Jesus restores us from our shame. Jesus restores us from our shame. Jesus did more than recreate the miracle in John 21. He went about recreating the situation where Peter denied him. Peter had sworn that he wouldn't deny Jesus, right? During the meal with the disciples. He's like, I would never disown you. I would die for you, right? In the big Passover meal. And so here, Jesus is cooking a meal for the disciples. Peter denied Jesus while warming himself around a fire. So here, Jesus builds a fire on the beach. Fun fact for you Bible scholars and fans of the original Greek text. The particular word for fire here can be translated as burning coals. And it only appears twice in the Bible. The first time when Peter's warming his hands, and the second time here when Jesus is, being, is restoring Peter. It's the same type of fire. And so in this familiar setting, Jesus asks Peter, Dude, do you love me? Not once, not twice, but thrice. And each time, Peter's like, yes, dude, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus gave him three opportunities to change his story, to reaffirm that he is his love, his Lord, his Savior, his God. Jesus doesn't do this out of shame, but to free him from the shackles of shame that he'd placed on himself from his failure. And that's what God does. He restores us. He breaks the chains. He frees the shackles. He calls us into this place of where he believes we will be our fullest people, fullest potential, and out of. He's calling you from this to his glory. Shame keeps us from having an intimate relationship. Uh, just look at your personal relationships today. If there is shame between you and another person, is that relationship healthy? Is it whole? It's an obstacle. It's providing a barrier. And maybe you just need a simple apology. Here's Jesus saying, let me remove the barrier. I have taken on that weight for you. Jesus probes and probes and probes into the heart of Peter, the wounded heart of Peter. And like a skilled surgeon, he cuts away the cancer. He cuts away the necrotic tissue. And he exposes the root of Peter's wounds. He does the same for us. And I believe he does it for many reasons. But for today, he does this, number one, so that we can acknowledge the wound. Sin means we, amen means we agree with the Lord, right? We need to amen our sin. Not amen like praise it, but like we need to agree with the Lord. Like, yo, we haven't done this right. We need to acknowledge the wound and then we need to allow Jesus to heal us and to restore us. Now you can be sure of this though. The quick responses, the quick cutoff replies, the well-meaning superficial responses that we give to placate ourselves when we've fallen don't mean a hill of beans to Jesus. We don't resolve our issues because we say, oops, my bad, let me not do that again and then proceed to go do that again. Restoration is a process that takes time. Chris and I talk about this in the morning sometimes. We talk about how sanctification is this ongoing process. Your process of being made like Christ is an ongoing process. It is the sanctification process. It doesn't mean you have to re-justify the Christ 
the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. But it means that you need to acknowledge that this journey that you're on, you're going to stumble. You're going to say bad words. You're going to fall down. But I really believe that the mark of a Christian is not how you fall down or how often you fall down, but how you get up and you say, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Restore me again today. My good friend Paul tells me he prays every morning before he gets up and has his feet hit the floor. He says, Lord, forgive me. Help me have a good day today. But just before he takes his feet off the floor at night, he says, Lord, I'm sure I messed up somewhere today, and I'm probably oblivious to it. So, Lord, I ask for your grace. And then he goes to bed. We need to do this same thing. We, we need to be like a closer, like a Major League Baseball closer. When we blow a save, we got to slough it off. It's done. You made a mistake. You move forward. You can't relive it. This whole scene is meant to show us that Peter is completely restored. He's restored to his position as a follower of Jesus, but he's also restored to his position as a leader of the church. Three times he's denied his Lord. Now three times he's affirmed his love. And three times he's been commissioned to care for the flock. Now if you're one of the other, I guess ten at this time, other disciples hanging out watching this thing take place on the beach, you might be like, Jesus, what are you doing? This dude totally bounced on you when you needed him. But then they're watching Jesus restore him. So think about how powerful an image it must have been for the disciples to see, man, even in our weakest moments, even, here's Peter, the, the rock that I'm going to build the church on. And yet God is saying, it's okay, I love you, you've made a mistake, you've owned it, let's move forward. Think about what this effect must have had. It's a demonstration that whatever mistakes of the past, Jesus is going to restore to a place of trust and to commission you with love. Which brings me to my last point this morning. Jesus replaces our shame with purpose. Pastor Rick Warren once told me, well, actually he told the whole conference. I just happened to be there. He said, out of your deepest hurt will come your greatest ministry. Out of your deepest pain will come your, deep, your greatest ministry. Now, Rick Warren, if you know his story, is a man who is well acquainted with pain. Out of our deepest hurt comes our greatest story. And I think Rick Warren knew this because he saw this story of how Jesus restored Peter from a place of pain and shame to a place of glory. But it was only because of his failure did Peter have the authority to speak in front of others. Throughout the history of the church, thousands have been scattered along the roadside of good intentions for ministry, myself included. I moved up here 13 years ago to plant a church for people who don't like and go to church. I'm preaching in Riverbend this morning, my church home now. The story that I had written for my life wasn't the story that God had for my life. It didn't mean I failed. It just meant that's not the story that he had planned for me. Now, it hurt hurt a heck of a lot when we had to go through the process of losing this thing that we had invested and created. But out of that dark hurt, God has raised up something else. He's used the gifts of the congregation to lift up this congregation, to lift up these pastors, to lift up this community. Because it's not about us. It's about him. He takes that shame and gives us purpose to glorify him. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I want you to feed my lambs, I want you to take care of my sheep, and then I want you to feed my sheep. He's not telling Peter this to make him feel better, ladies and gentlemen. No, he has a mission. 
wife and I had a chance to spend some time at the fair yesterday afternoon. We got to see all the lambs and the sheepy sheepies and the moo moos. And I was reminded that lamb, young baby, when Peter is told to feed my lambs, Jesus is saying, take care of those who are young in their faith. Meet them, care for them, love them. Embrace them and raise them up to become sheep. When he says, take care of my sheep, he's saying, Peter, disciple, mentor, those whose faith is deepening. And when he says, feed my sheep, he's saying, care for all generations, Peter. All generations of Christians. Not just the Jewish ones, not just the Gentile ones, not just the ones that have followed me good all the time, not just the ones that have never met me before and are just now coming to place. He says, take care of all of them. Some of my favorite words from Jesus was love God, love people. That's literally what he's telling Peter to do. Love God and love people. He's calling Peter very intentionally to mentor, develop, and disciple others. So here's the hard part of my message this morning. Christian, in the room, I'm going to speak a moment to you. If you're not yet a Christian or not going to be a Christian or you're just here because the coffee's great, pay attention and hold us accountable. Because if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, this is your responsibility. Not my responsibility as a pastor, not Ed's, not Matt's, not Chris's, not Joe's, not John's, not anybody. This is our responsibility as a Christian. This calling to care for the lambs and the sheep was not just for Peter. Mentoring, developing, and discipling others is for everyone. And we need everyone in this church to be a part of it. Every single one of us. You have something to offer. Whether it's in kids ministry and foundations, whether it's working on the band, working on the, the stage and the stuff in the back, teaching, small group leading. We've got a big capital campaign coming. We need everybody on board with this. It's not just in your homes and in your dorms. It's not just the places that you frequent. But it is especially the relationships that are closest to you. And the relationships that are dearest to you. Because here's what this story for Peter shows me. When we choose to sit in shame and in the failures of our sin, we rob God of the joyful purpose that he's called us to. We tell Jesus that his sacrifice wasn't good enough. We tell Jesus that his sacrifice was beneath us. We mute the stirrings of God's heart and Holy Spirit in our souls. And we cannot hold up our sin and our shame and failure over the glorious place as an idol in our hearts where the Lord wants to heal. Christian, I need you to mentor, I need you to disciple, I need you to discipline, but I also need you to stop letting the, the mistakes of your past hold you back from the place of your future. Everybody else can tune in again now. The name Peter, this is the name that Jesus had given him. It's, it's, it's Greek for Petros, which means rock. I don't think Peter was called this because he was dense, although I do like to joke about that. But because God's plan for Peter always was, even before this restoration moment, with that Peter would be the rock that he would build the church upon. He would be the foundation. If Jesus is the cornerstone, Peter gets to be the next brick. He gets to be a part of that. Peter affirm, or Jesus affirms Peter's mission, and he says, shepherd the church and follow me. And I'd like to think that Peter lived up to this. Because the next book in the Bible, after John, is Acts of the Apostles, or Acts of the Holy Spirit. And what do we see Peter doing in Acts chapter 2? Boldly preaching the word of God. Telling people to repent of their sins, to turn back and to accept Christ as the risen Savior. I think Peter owned up to it. Now, he still made mistakes. 
if you continue in the apostle, of Acts, the apostle's story, there's this dude named Cornelius. Peter has a hard time with. Peter has a hard time disassociating Jews and Gentiles. Peter makes some mistakes, and he gets called on the carpet by Paul and by others, but he still fulfills the responsibility, the oath, the calling that God had placed on his life. Did Peter become a rock because of his failings or in spite of them? I don't know. And probably really not all that important, but it's good to know that the name that God calls you out by to call you into something doesn't change when you fall down. All the time, I have seen people, in the 20 years I've been a Christian, I have seen God help people overcome shame and use it to help others. I've seen people who have had horrible marriages, had infidelity, have not just restored their marriages, but be pioneers and champions for restoring marriages with others. I've seen women who have had abortions start abortion recovery ministries. I've seen men who were sexually abused as a child help lead other men to a safe place of strength and freedom away from the abuse. I've seen alcoholics and addicts champion the call to recovery. That way others might live to sobriety, to freedom, and to intentional discipleship. I could go on and on. Here's where I land the plan. God doesn't want us to live under a cloud of shame. He's forgiven us. He wants to heal us from that shame. He wants to bring us out of whatever's causing it, and he wants to give us a new purpose in helping others. So I ask you, consider this. How is shame holding you back from God's mission on your life? It doesn't have to be a big shame. It could be a little stub-toe thing. I'm not saying you have to have it, but I think we all have this thing that we're like, man, if I just felt like I had this deeper connection with the Lord, Maybe I would feel more confident in doing these things. Well, let me, let me tell you, my favorite psalm, Psalm 139, by that dude named David we talked about, the liar, the murderer, the adulterer. He says this in Psalm 139, and he's talking about God. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. The shame that is holding you back is holding you back. And God wants to free you from it. He wants to release that burden. All the days of our lives, ladies and gentlemen, have been laid out before the Lord. All of our triumphs, all of our failures, all of our denials. Jesus, being God in the flesh, would know this. He would know this about his disciples. He knew this about Peter. And still, Jesus loved him. Why? Because today's main point. You're never too far gone because love is one. How is shame holding you back? Think about that this week. Maybe take some time to write down, journal on it if that's what you need to do. Maybe take some time to just go walk outside if that's your thing. Get away from the noise. And just explore yourself. What's holding you back from living out the mission that God has called you to? Because Jesus wants to restore you. Embrace the truth about who Jesus is. Face your fear. Let Jesus restore you from these failures. And then live with renewed purpose. To love God, to love people. Because together, we can turn the world upside down. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, your grace baffles me. It absolutely makes my mind confused. And yet, you pour it out freely, time and time again. You invite us out of the place of our depth, out of the place of our brokenness, out of the place of our weakness, away from our shame and into a place of victory. 
Meet us today in that space, Lord. Meet us right now in our hearts. Let our, let our, our mind be open. Let our ears be open. Stir, the, stir in our spirits. Lord. Thank you for always pursuing us. Thank you for doing a great work in removing our shame. And thank you, most importantly, for your love that is one. We love you. We praise you in the perfect name of Christ. And I invite everyone to say, Amen.